This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Hello and welcome to Heritage Matters, a programme brought to you by the Southern Heritage Trust and sponsored by Ryman Healthcare. I'm Dougal Stevenson. In this programme, Gregor Campbell looks at the 1865 trial of convicted poisoner William Jarvie. Bill Southworth follows the career of an Otago doctor who tended to wounded World War II partisans in the mountains of Yugoslavia. And we hear the second part of Barrister Alf Hanlon's less-than-comfortable travels through central Otago. Before the age of television, sensational trials drew large crowds and even larger numbers of newspaper readers. One such trial was the talk of Dunedin in 1865. In the dock was William Jarvie, who was accused of poisoning his wife whilst his young daughter looked on. This report from Gregor Campbell. Captain William Andrew Jarvie was the first person hanged in the South Island. His trial for the poisoning of his wife with strychnine was the sensation of the day, with the chief prosecution witness being his daughter, who had seen her mother die. A mystery woman was also a feature, a second wife whom Harvey had married bigamously. A hung jury delayed justice and necessitated a second trial. At the end of that trial, after some deliberation, the jury returned to the courtroom. It was night and the room was lit only by three or four candles. The guilty verdict was announced. The following was published by the North Otago Times on September 21st, 1865. Being asked his age, the prisoner replied, 42, and being further asked, have you anything to say why sentence of death should not be passed upon you? He answered, yes. He then, with great firmness, except that he several times wept and seemed much affected, addressed the court as follows. I have to say, in the first place, that, in the presence of my God, I am innocent. I have been convicted by the laws of man. I am aware that your honour's sentence will soon place me in such a position that I will meet my wife, whose murder I am accused of. I know that your honour's sentence will soon send me where I will have her for a witness, and I do respectfully say that that will be before a judgment seat, more seeing than yours, Your Honour, as to what is justice. I am not afraid of death, Your Honour. My career has been all my life, where I have been in the habit of walking with only a plank between me and eternity, where I could look over my ship's side and see death staring me in the face. I am not afraid of death. What I grieve for is the unfortunate orphans that I will leave behind. However, I will die with a clear conscience, Your Honour, and, as I said before, I know Your Honour's sentence will soon place me in such a position that I will have my wife for a witness, whether I am her murderer or not. I suppose this is the last time I will have an opportunity of addressing my fellow creatures, and, that being so, I will address them. I came to the colonies 23 years ago, I came out on the same ship with my wife, and when we came to the colonies, I married her. Our first child died. That unfortunate girl, who in that box has sworn away my life, knows that she is not my daughter. 
and that she is not the daughter of my wife. She is the child of a young lady in Tasmania who had the misfortune to become pregnant by her father's assigned servant. And for the consideration of a sum of money, my poor wife and I took her to cloak the shame of her mother's family, and I have done my duty to her as if I had been her father. The judge interjected, Prisoner, it is idle you're going into these matters now. Your Honour, the registrar's books in Tasmania will show what I have stated, and I have no doubt some persons will be curious enough to inquire whether it is the truth. I am not now in a position to tell a falsehood, but I wish particularly to observe, and there must be persons in this court who know, that at the last trial that girl gave a motion of her mother's arms like this, like pulling two paddles in a boat. This time, she gives it up and down, like this. As to my conduct to my wife, I have lived for 23 years, or very near it, in Tasmania. I have always endeavoured to conduct myself as a man and a gentleman. As such, I came here. But there is one thing I feel it my duty to say, in regard to the female on whose character a stigma is attempted to be cast, with my last breath, I say it as a falsehood, that the stigma cast on her... Miss Little, I mean, is not due to her. I again repeat, Your Honour, that I am innocent of the crime of which I am convicted. I stand convicted by the laws of man, but I am not afraid to meet my God. Have you anything to add, prisoner? I wish to add that I forgive all those who have had a hand in my destruction. I forgive that unfortunate girl, and may God forgive her. May God forgive all those who have had a hand in my destruction. I forgive them. They have their end. They have what they have tried for. They have the life of a fellow creature. I would, as far as I can, commend my poor orphan children. I do commend them to the sympathy of those left behind. Your Honour, I know what your sentence will be, that it will soon place me in the presence of God, where I will have my wife for a witness that I am not guilty. I submit myself to your Honour's sentence. The judge put on the black cap and said with much emotion, Prisoner at the bar, I should be doing an injustice to the jury who tried you, and I should be false to my own conviction if I were to abstain from saying at the present moment that my mind is entirely unmoved by anything you have addressed to the court. I must also state that I entirely concur in the verdict which dooms you to the scaffold. You are wrong very wrong in treating that verdict as if it stood wholly or in any great part on the testimony of the girl called Elizabeth Ann Jarvie. The verdict against you stands upon grounds almost independent of that girl's testimony. So far as, in my judgment, it stands upon her testimony, that testimony is confirmed by the indubitable testimony of facts. I believe that you have been most righteously convicted of the crime of murder in one of its most heinous shapes, and that you are now adding to that crime the guilt of hypocrisy. The poisoner is of all criminals the most detestable. His crime is generally most cruel, generally most treacherous. That is the character of an ordinary poisoner. But you are no ordinary poisoner. Your victim was one whom you were not only bound to protect by the common ties of humanity, but to whom you were united by ties of the closest nature and by the most solemn obligation. Your victim was your wife, the mother of your children, 
one who, as far as appears here, was a much enduring and forgiving one. Such horrible wickedness is yours. Of it, you have been righteously convicted. Your conviction costs this country a large sum of money. It is money well spent. It is one of the most necessary purposes of government that crimes like yours should be detected, pursued, and finally punished to satisfy the righteous desire that God himself has placed in every human mind to secure society against crimes like yours. These are the proper ends of the dreadful punishment of death. It would be well if the prospect of that death worked upon you in a proper way, doing what nothing else can do so well, bringing you to a due sense of the enormity of your crime and to a contrite confession of it. Should that be the effect, you will not wish to lengthen your wretched life, but you will welcome your most just doom for the commission of a most cruel murder. As the mouthpiece of the law of the land, I now pronounce upon you its last sentence, which is that you, William Andrew Jarvie, be taken hence to the place from whence you came, and thence to the place of execution, and that you be there hanged by the neck until you are dead, and that your body be buried within the precincts of the jail, within which you shall be confined after your condemnation. And may God have mercy on your soul. I'm Gregor Campbell for Heritage Matters. Graduates from the Otago Medical School have often gone on to challenging and varied careers, but few can match that of Dr. Lindsay Rogers, who found himself conducting wartime surgery by torchlight in guerrilla hospitals hidden deep in Yugoslavian forests. He had to live in constant fear. If Nazi search parties had found him, he and all his patients would have been stabbed or shot to death. This report from Bill Southworth. The man who came to be regarded as a hero in Yugoslavia and whom its leader, Marshal Tito, would award the Order of Bravery and the Order of Merit was raised and educated in Otago. It was Lindsay Sankster Rogers who graduated from the Otago Medical School in 1927 with a Bachelor of Medicine in Surgery. Four years later, he was made a Fellow of the Royal College of Surgeons. After working in England for a brief period, he returned to New Zealand and set up practice in Te Awamutu. When World War II broke out, the 40-year-old Dr Rogers joined the Royal Army Medical Corps and was shipped to the New Zealand Division in Tunisia. Once the battle for the North African coast had been won, Rogers volunteered for what was described as a dangerous mission in the Balkans. He was initially turned down, but he persisted and eventually got permission to go to Yugoslavia as a surgical volunteer. In preparation, he was sent to sabotage school to learn how to blow things up and then to commando school to learn silent killing, something that quite threw him, and he needed to quietly point out to his instructors that he was, after all, a doctor and a healer, not a killer. Dr. Rogers and a small medical team were secretly landed on the Dalmatian coast and made contact with Marshal Tito's communist partisans. Winston Churchill had decided that these communist-led fighters were the most effective guerrillas in Yugoslavia and sent supplies and specialists to help them. The partisans had tied down 28 German divisions, more than were fighting the whole of the British and American armies in Italy, 
and they were giving the invaders a real run for their money. Dr. Rogers' group soon fell foul of the political officers or commissars. One of his team had started a relationship with a female partisan called Goiko. The penalty for love in the partisan army was death. By sending his team member home, Dr. Rogers managed to defuse the situation. In his book, Guerrilla Surgeon, Dr. Rogers explained what happened next. Next evening, Goiko disappeared. We never saw her again. Somewhere in Bosnia is Goiko's grave, somewhere in the mountains. I heard months later that she died willingly, fell in the mud, her cap falling from her head and lying with its red star still gleaming against the snow. The Nazis regarded the Slavs as subhuman and treated them appallingly. Helping the invaders were several neo-fascist local groups. Prominent amongst them were a Serbian organisation called the Chetniks. They were often very brutal, and the savagery of their tactics was an eye-opener for the Tiawamutu GP. Not long after he landed, he agreed to a request by a partisan Orthodox priest to treat a sick girl. There, on a real bed with white sheets, lay a small, fragile, beautiful girl of sixteen. Her hair was done in plait tied with a blue ribbon, and she wore a bed jacket of beautifully worked lacy wool. She smiled and I went to her and took her thin white hand in mine. We examined her and found she had a marked spinal deformity and associated tuberculosis of the chest. I spoke to the parents of the necessity of complete rest. But what can we do if the Germans come and find her, they said. I tried to assure them that they would not harm her, for she was a small child, sick and beautiful in her tragedy. They said nothing knowing better than I the ways of the master race. Two days later I heard that the Chetniks came down to the village where she'd been and took over the two-storied house as their headquarters. They found the little girl, so white and beautiful, in her sheets. They stabbed her to death and threw the body from the second-story window to the parents beneath and shot them a few minutes later. Dr. Rogers went on to establish forest hospitals deep in the Bosnian mountains. A steady stream of seriously wounded partisans was treated there. Despite the primitive conditions and the constant shortage of medical supplies, he conducted major operations, including many limb amputations. Although the hospitals were well hidden, they sometimes had to be evacuated at short notice to escape the advancing Germans. One day, a Dornier, an aeroplane, came. It was morning, and luckily the fires were not yet lit. The great lumbering plane swept over the forest, almost at treetop level, and searched up and down for our hospital. In their policy of total extermination, they concentrated particularly on the Yugoslav hospitals, many of which had already been burnt to the ground, and their inmates murdered in their beds or burnt to death in the hospitals. This altered our routine, for now it was too dangerous to have smoke rising from the forest during the day, so cooking and water heating for the theatre had to be done at night. The hospitals Dr. Rogers started treated hundreds of wounded partisans, the most serious of whom were evacuated by air to Italy. The work he was doing caught the attention of Marshal Tito, the man who later would go on to lead his country for more than 30 years. Dr. Rogers was invited to meet Tito, and he came away most impressed by the guerrilla general who was leading the most effective resistance movement in occupied Europe. 
He asked me about our new medical service in New Zealand. I couldn't help wondering about the breadth of his information in these troublesome and darkened days. I told him about our country and its inherent wealth and great social progress. I told him of the happiness of the people and the almost complete lack of poverty. He asked about our educational system and our universities. Yes, he added, and we have so little. Dr. Rogers so admired the courage and friendliness of the partisans that his reports back to Italy received a cool reception from senior English officers that he was reporting to, who found him to be too pro-partisan. Jesus Christ, he said to himself, wasn't I sent there to be pro-partisan? He thought it was high time that the high-ranking officers should cross the water and experience the Chetniks and Germans for themselves. However, he did find the surveillance that he was under from some commissars oppressive. He disliked the hour-long propaganda lectures the patients, no matter how ill they were, were subject to each day, even if they were dying. He also found that only about 10% of the partisans were communists and just pretended to be listening to the lectures. The majority seemed to be really fighting for a better tomorrow for Yugoslavia. Much of Rogers' writing is evocative of Hemingway as he describes the fighting, courage and companionship of the partisans in the high mountains of Croatia, Bosnia and Slovenia. He found some areas there reminiscent of Lockendorb in the Catalans, where he spent part of his boyhood. There was the rushing river below and the dark peaks beyond, crisscrossing the horizon like a jagged saw. People's faces flashed before me, pleasant, contented, happy New Zealanders who had never known murder in their midst, had never seen burnt churches with blood running down the steps, who walked freely through the mountains, never listening for the coming step of terrorists, who never heard the rattle of machine-gun fire echo down their valleys. When the war ended, Dr. Rogers took up a professorship in surgery in Iraq and then returned to his GP practice in Te Awamutu. He never forgot his roots in Otago, however, and became a major donor of Middle Eastern artefacts to the Otago Museum. Ironically, for someone who'd faced and survived such dangers, in 1962, while holidaying in New Caledonia, he was drowned when, during a tropical downpour, his car plunged off a bridge into a flooded river. He was just 61. This is Bill Southworth reporting for Heritage Matters. In our last programme, we followed the travels around central Otago courts in the 19th century of famous barrister Alf Hanlon and discovered that travel in those days could be quite an ordeal. Here's part two of that saga from Gregor Campbell. Alf Hanlon's journeying in the service of the law took him to, of all places, the township of Nenthorn, now little more than a couple of roofless stone buildings up in the hills on this side of Middlemarch. Among other rural adventures I experienced was a visit to Nenthorn Goldfield in the Waihemo County at the time of the discovery of the gold-bearing quartz reefs which brought a mild boom. I was engaged to put several applications for mining privileges through the warden's court at McRae's and made the trip north by rail and stagecoach. The two tiny hotels in the township were crammed to overflowing and the nights were filled with incident and excitement. The weather was bitterly cold, but nobody seemed to want to go to bed. The result was that the bars did a thriving trade and hot toddies followed each other in quick succession down scores of throats. Of course, 
the inevitable happened. There were thick heads and unsteady gates all over the place. I had retired to my room late on the evening of court day and had not been between the chilly sheets very long when I heard someone making his precarious way along the passage. Just as the footsteps reached my door, there came a terrific crash, followed by a portentous silence, which was broken only by some stertorous breathing. Whoever it was made no attempt to regain his feet, and I was still considering what I should do when, by the light of a candle I had just lit, I noticed a dark, red, sluggish stream oozing under the door into my room. This finally roused me, and not a little alarmed, I opened the door to find a man lying with his head against the door jamb and bleeding freely from an ugly gash. He had apparently fallen and struck his head against the sharp edge of my doorway, and he seemed to be in a bad way. I found the proprietor, who was still discharging the duties of mine host with vigour, and with the aid of one or two others we carried the poor fellow to his room, and after washing and bandaging the wound, put him to bed. I returned to my room, but by now the cold had got into my bones and I was unable to sleep. As hour followed wakeful hour, I became more and more sorry for myself and I determined that as soon as I concluded my business, I would shake the dust, actually, on this occasion it was mud, of Macrae's from my feet, and get back to the railhead at Dunback by any means that offered. It was not coach day, but I refused to allow that to deter me. Shortly before midday, I was free to take the road, but the question was how. I did not relish a walk of 16 miles, so that, although I had never ridden a horse in my life, my only alternative was to take to the saddle. Through the good offices of Constable Con of Palmerston, who had also been attending the court, I was provided with a steed. And what a horse! It was a half-broken two-year-old draught, which was brought round to the door of my hotel just after lunch. Of course, everybody in the township had to be lounging about the two hotels, and I was tempted to postpone my departure until after the court had resumed. But as it was beginning to rain again and I was not at all sure how long it would take me to reach Dunback, I decided to make my break, despite the fact that I was sure that everybody was anticipating my departure with some amusement. What proficiency my audience expected me to display as a horseman, I do not know, but I received my first round of applause when I mounted my horse on the wrong side. Actually, I know nothing of right or wrong sides, choosing the side I did simply because it was nearest to the footpath. When I finally rode out, I fear I gave an exhibition which delighted everyone. There was a Don Quixote and Sancho Panza effect to my departure that amused them mightily, and I felt that they must all be thinking, and when again he rides abroad, may I be there to see. It had been my intention to arrange my departure on a strictly dignified note, sitting bolt upright on my walking horse until I had passed out of view around a conveniently handy bend of the road. But hardly had I raised my hand an uncertain farewell to such of those in the gathering who might in turn wish me well, than some jovial soul brought his cap down on my charger's rump with a resounding smack. Away went the horse, and away went I. The day might still have been saved if the animal had jumped into an easy canter, but... Of all the most embarrassing gates he knew, he chose a trot. Nothing I could do would produce anything approaching the synchronisation of my movements with those of the horse. As I rose into the air, his broad back receded away from me. 
and as I came down again, the hard, unsympathetic leather of my borrowed saddle came up to meet me with a teeth-rattling bump that all but unseated me. Alternately, jerking at the reins and reviling the beast in the best vocabulary I could muster, I tried in vain to persuade him to my way of thinking, but the last thing in the world he appeared to want to do was to walk. At the end of a quarter of a mile, I had decided that there could hardly be a whole bone left in my pain-racked frame when all of a sudden the animal stopped to a walk. The cause was a horse cover, which some settler, showing, I thought, a disgraceful disgust for his own property, had left flapping in the wind and the rain on the barbed wire of the road-lined fence. Eventually, I dismounted and tried to drag the stationary horse past the spot, but after several fruitless attempts, I hitched the animal to a fence post and, rain and mud notwithstanding, filled my pipe and sat down in the shelter of some ridiculously small bushes to await the coming of my friend, Constable Conn, who had told me he would be following on shortly after me as soon as he had finished his duties. My second pipe was glowing, as well as the humid conditions would permit, when I heard the sound of a horse approaching. It was the constable, swinging along at a spanking pace, which I was too discouraged even to envy. What's the matter with you? he cried in astonishment when he saw me sitting at the roadside. This damned horse you got for me is a jib, I complained querulously. He won't go past that horse cover on the fence. I suppose it wouldn't occur to you to shift the cover instead of sitting there in the rain, he replied. No, I hadn't thought of that, I admitted. A fine lawyer you'll make, he said, as he led my horse past the offending object. For about a mile we rode together, but the pace was too slow for Con. My horse had difficulty in keeping its feet on the slushy clay road, and after a while my companion said he thought he'd better push on, as he had to get to Palmerston that night, and I had only to make Dunback. You'll get to Dunback all right, he shouted as he cantered off. Wishing I could share his optimism, I pushed on slowly and I finally reached my destination, but the constable's all right scarcely fitted my condition. What parts of my legs and seat were not blistered were skinless. I was wet with cold and thoroughly miserable and could hardly get out of the saddle. After some sort of a meal, I limped unhappily to bed, where I lay in torment on my stomach all night. I have the honour to be Gregor Campbell for Heritage Matters. This programme, which will be repeated on Sunday at 7pm, is kindly sponsored by Ryman Healthcare and brought to you by the Southern Heritage Trust. Ryman Healthcare prides itself on offering some of the most resident-friendly terms in New Zealand. Ryman Healthcare's Francis Hodgkins and Yvette Williams Retirement Villages in Dunedin offer the very best of retirement living and care. For more information and to discuss your retirement living options, please phone Kate on 455-7936. Ryman Healthcare, supporting Southern Heritage Trust and the Heritage Matters Programme. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.